0: Arrested parties to give a green light to NATO.
1: Pedal sharpened
0: up. Screaming is therapy.
1: you're listening to Radio Free Philosophy. Welcome to Radio Free Philosophy, my name is Kevin Brown and I'm Bob Uricu and this week we're gonna be discussing Wittgenstein, uh, in particular his uh, philosophical investigations, or at least some excerpts of it that provide a kind of an interesting take on the the notion of dualism, uh, which a lot of people find a unique way of looking at the problem as opposed to how we've been looking at it in the past. Uh, But it starts with uh, an investigation of language. Wittgenstein seems to be very concerned about the idea of language and how language works. You know, language was the
0: uh, the solution that Wittgenstein found to the problem that goes way back to Descartes. And that's, as you said, the, the issue of dualism, uh, separating everything into mind and body. And Descartes' proposal was to doubt everything outside the mind. And... Uh, Wittgenstein took a much more um, common-sense approach to this by saying, why doubt what we already know?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of people don't know much about Wittgenstein, but when they discover what he's up to, they like the idea that it seems very commonsensical. Wittgenstein was famous for writing in very colloquial uh, terms when he wrote philosophy. He didn't use any technical jargon at all, uh, very much unlike Descartes or Kant or perhaps any of the philosophers we've looked at uh he, he uses very ordinary examples because he's trying to look at how we ordinarily use language and see whether that might resolve some of these philosophical problems we've gotten into mm-hmm. he has a very unique take on philosophy in that respect that is philosophy not necessarily uh, looks at problems that already exist in the world and tries to solve them, Wittgenstein actually thinks that philosophy ends up creating a lot of its own problems. And if it could just correct its way of looking at language, some of those problems wouldn't be solved, they would just dissolve. Indeed. And he wasn't pleased with the way some
0: philosophers were handling language. For example, the, the School of Linguistic Analysis, um, like A.J. Ayer, um, who came after Dick, uh, Wittgenstein, but were saying things like, uh, the only meaningful statements in the world are statements that can be verified empirically otherwise they're meaningless. So an analytical statement in which the subject is contained in the predicate is a meaningful statement, a mathematical statement, or something that um, swans are white that can be empirically verified. But a statement like stealing is wrong could not be empirically verified, and then for so for people like A.J. Ayer and a lot of linguistic analysis, linguistic analysis, that is a meaningless statement, and has no significance whatsoever for humanity.
1: Yeah, and that certainly greatly bothered Wittgenstein. Uh, although ironically, uh, the positivists like Ayer always thought Wittgenstein was in their camp on this idea of verification and language, because Wittgenstein does allude to this in an earlier work called the Tractatus, where he does talk about uh, verification as one possible way of understanding language. Wittgenstein himself came to view this idea as wrong when he came back to philosophy years later. He left philosophy uh, for many, many years after he wrote the Tractatus, and he came to view this idea of language being only a way of describing reality as an inherently flawed view of language. And so in the Investigations, a work which he wrote much later in his life, he actually never completed it, he takes a different view of language by using an analogy uh, where he compares language and a game. So he comes up with this notion of the language game to describe what language is up to. Mm -hmm. And the point of the language game analogy is to show that Language is not simply a passive instrument that we use to describe reality. It's an active feature of our life. It's intimately woven into our activities. And the notion of a game is to emphasize the active nature of language. Uh, Other philosophers like John Austin picked up on this years later and and called uh, certain uses of language performative utterances. Like for instance, making a promise. If I make a promise to somebody, the action is literally saying, I promise. And there are other examples as well where the words literally are the action. Sure. That's Uh, the kind of thing Wittgenstein has in mind.
0: In Wittgenstein's Catholic background, for example, he'd be very much aware of that, like sacramental usages of a priest. uh, This is my body, this is my blood.
1: Uh, Yeah, Wittgenstein is very interested uh, actually in religious uses Mm -hmm. of language. Uh, He once famously said that he couldn't help but see every problem from a religious point of view. scholars have puzzled about what he meant by that, but certainly religious uses of language are one way of using language that's much different than, let's say, the way a scientist uses language. And that's another point that the language game analogy is supposed to be illustrating. Just like there are different games with different sets of rules, there are different uses of language which also have different sets of rules. So even the same word used in a different context can have a totally different meaning because it has a totally different use. For Wittgenstein. use and meaning are very closely connected. In fact, he, uh, he says in the investigations at one point that for a large class of cases, the meaning of a word simply is its use, how it gets used.
0: Yeah, and that's like the lexical meaning of a word, as we know in logic, is uh, the, the current use of a word in language. Um, but words have, have power. They're, they're real. Think for Wittgenstein, out of the, the whole Judeo-Christian tradition, talks about blessing and cursing, and again, back to the Catholic thing that, that um, sacramentally, uh, when a, a priest or a minister pronounces someone man and wife, that 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 takes effect. It's real. So it's interesting that um, Wittgenstein be considered a Catholic, an Austrian Catholic from Linz, but in point of fact, he has a very interesting background, doesn't he? His uh his great grandparents on one side and his grandparents on another side were Jewish and this is going to cause a problem for him later on in life because he's going to grow up in Linz and he's going to attend the same school as Adolf Hitler yeah. as a child
1: and he was of course being in Austria uh, right there in the middle of of things in World War 1 he actually was a soldier in World War 1 and uh, had some trouble getting some of his family out during World War II. Yes. Uh, His uh, Jewish background actually was the uh, subject of a fairly melodramatic point in Wittgenstein's life where he he brought together a lot of different people he knew and, and close friends to confess to them. And one of the things he wanted to confess was the fact that he had not been forthright about his Jewish heritage. That bothered him greatly. Yes, Uh, His friends didn't seem to think much one way or the other about it, but uh, it it weighed on his mind, so it was certainly part of his his background and his heritage. And, of course, um, there is an interesting connection, I guess, you could make between the uh, notions of Judaic philosophy being a very ethical, uh, Mm rule-based religion and Wittgenstein's emphasis both on ethics and rules. Because language, of course, like a game, is... Uh, characterized by its its rules. Language is a rule-governed enterprise. Mm -hmm. Um, The notion of the language game also illustrates that sometimes the rules change depending on what game you're playing. Uh, And Wittgenstein actually, in in an early part of the investigations, outlines a lot of different examples of uses of language. And since you mentioned the religious connection, he does specify certain religious uses of language. Thanking, cursing, greeting, praying. Mm -hmm all of which have religious uses, as well as other uses of language. So he's very much concerned with how language gets used, but not in a philosophical sense. In fact Wittgenstein says what we do as philosophers is bring bring language back from its metaphysical to its everyday usage. That's where the solutions to these problems are going to be found. Because strangely enough, being a philosopher, Wittgenstein thinks that philosophers meddle with language and distort the meaning of very ordinary words like the self uh, is a good example Um, think back on all the different uses that we've seen throughout philosophy so far Uh, wittgenstein uh, questions most of those Descartes said the self was a thinking thing Mm -hmm. Hume said it was a bundle of perceptions Mm -hmm. Kant said it was a transcendental unity of perception Mm -hmm. when I say self I never mean any of those things when I say, uh, well, it's just, uh, I'm just here by myself, I-, I don't mean any of those philosophical That's things. Right. And meaning those might get us into some philosophical problems.
0: Sure, so Wittgenstein wanted to cut to the chase. and just What do we mean? What's, what's the practical use of the term self? He was, he was so common sense oriented. And, and yet, when we talk about him like this, it sounds like we're talking about some guy in an ivory tower uh, speculating about the nature of reality. When in fact Wittgenstein's life was tragic in so many ways, and I mean he, he served in the military. He was a, he was a, in a field artillery unit on the Russian front. Uh, he was commended for bravery in action, and and he was no stranger to tragedy in other ways. Personal tragedy, suicide yeah. touched his life in so many ways. But all but two of his brothers committed suicide, I believe.
1: Yeah, and Wittgenstein contemplated it sometimes on a daily basis. Yes. Uh, one of his brothers who didn't commit suicide lost his right arm in the war mm-hmm. uh, and, and was a concert pianist, yes. which was particularly tragic. Uh, but the family was so well connected, they knew uh, they knew everybody worth knowing in, in uh, Vienna at the time. And so they just simply commissioned Maurice Ravel to compose some pieces for, for the left hand only. And so Paul Wittgenstein was able to continue his career. As a concert pianist, and became very, very and, wealthy. Yes,
0: of course. The father, Wittgenstein's father and Paul's father, um, was extremely wealthy. And, and when he died, he left them a vast amount, a vast fortune. I believe so much so that when when uh, they were negotiating with the Hitler regime about being accepted as citizens, even though they had they were tainted by Jewish blood, they were called Michling. Um, I believe that Paul from New York. Bought his citizenship back in Austria, or in the German Republic then, the Reich, with so much gold, that it accounted for nearly two percent of the the annual budget of Austria.
1: Yeah, that's so. plausible. Yeah, they had they had a phenomenal amount of money. Though Wittgenstein gave away most of his inheritance, mm-hmm. uh, Wittgenstein uh, was notoriously ascetic in his own lifestyle. Uh, in fact, uh, one time he. Uh, he was teaching at Cambridge, and of course they set you up pretty well as a, as a don at Cambridge, or even as a lecturer, which is what Wittgenstein was, and he gave that up and moved to Norway to live in a, in a cottage in the mm-hmm. middle of nowhere, literally, uh, because he he felt very intensely that he needed the privacy uh, for his work, his, his philosophy. Wittgenstein is unique among philosophers uh, in one respect, that is, you really need to know something about his background to understand his philosophy, which Mm -hmm. is why we're talking about his background. You you almost can't say that about any other philosopher, maybe with the exception of Descartes. Uh, Kant didn't have much of a background, so there's not much to say, Mm -hmm. and you don't really need to understand Kant's personality to understand his philosophy, but Wittgenstein, you really do. There's, There's something about his personality that's deeply ingrained in the philosophy, because Wittgenstein was driven to do philosophy. He simply couldn't not do philosophy. He mm-hmm. passionately wanted to not do philosophy, but he couldn't. He had to do philosophy. Uh, he famously um, advised all his best students not to do yeah, philosophy it, that's at right, all.
0: That's right. But there's so much in his background that lends itself to this. Uh, his religious fervor. Um, he, he was not raised as a fervent Catholic, but became a, almost a born-again Christian reading the works of Tolstoy. He used to keep a New Testament in his pocket all the time, and and preached um, to. His they called him soldiers. the man with the gospels. Yeah. The man with the gospels. That's right, that's right. And um, he got sick and tired of him. the soldiers not treating him with respect because he felt he had a beautiful message to deliver. And then after that, he toyed with Marxism, and even visited Russia, Soviet Russia, and looked looked for a job there. Um, he was a prisoner of war under the Italians in World War One. I. I mean, this guy's an incredible background. And as you said, he gave away most of his fortune, but he gave it, after all his ascetic beliefs and his love for the poor, generated by the Gospels, he gave all his money to his family because they were already rich. He felt that riches would corrupt poor people, but they couldn't touch his his wealthy family because they were already corrupted by
1: (laughs) (laughs) Now, in his defense, he did give some to uh, some artists. In fact, the the poet Rilke, he gave uh, some money to as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we've spent a little time talking about Wittgenstein's background and this will provide us a good uh, uh, preface for Wittgenstein's philosophy uh, which we're actually going to break up into two parts I think. Uh, Wittgenstein's comments on private language which have to do with dualism and then we'll talk about epistemology next week. Good. So maybe before we get into that, we'll take a break and then talk about the philosophy. What Fassbinder film is it? The one-armed man comes into the flower shop and says, What flower?" expresses, days
0: go by, and they just keep going by, endlessly, pulling you into the future. Days go by, endlessly, endlessly pulling you into the future, and the florist says,
1: Okay, we're back and uh, maybe the best way to start uh, getting into the philosophy of Wittgenstein is to ask a question which is have you ever been to the doctor because you have some pain or other and you say to the doctor man I'm in some pretty severe pain and the doctor says well what's you know describe the pain and you say well I'm not sure how to describe it but I know I'm in pain
0: Mm -hmm. how do you know you're in pain
1: and most people will say, well, yeah, I mean, it's, of course you know you're in pain. How, how, why is that even a question? Uh, Wittgenstein, though, wants to question that claim and go so far as to say it doesn't make any sense at all to say you know you're in pain. In fact, in the investigations, he says that, it's, that's a misuse of the expression to know. So much so that if, if you're actually using the word know in its normal usage you cannot say of yourself at all that you know you're in pain except, Wittgenstein says, perhaps as a joke.
0: Right. I remember reading a story about him. He had a female acquaintance who was too sick to come to one of his classes and he called her and asked how she was doing. and She said, I feel like a dog that's just been run over. And he said, And how does that feel? How do you know how it feels to be a dog that's just been
1: run over? Yeah. And that's something that you can ask the question, could you know that or not? But somehow you can't ask that question about yourself. And so what we have to figure out is what's the difference between knowing how a dog feels and knowing how you feel? Because one of those is a misuse of the expression. Mm -hmm. And maybe the best way to put it is, uh, have you ever been wrong about being in pain? I don't think I've ever been wrong. I mean, if, if, if I'm in pain, I can't be mistaken about it. it it's, it's a sensation that mm-hmm. I feel, but I don't know that you could be wrong about it. But think about how the word no usually works. If I say, well, I know the capitals of all 50 states, mm-hmm. you can imagine that when you ask me to list them off, I might get a few wrong. Mm-hmm. Say, well, I know the capital of, um, of uh, Illinois is Chicago. Well, I, that's wrong. So it's possible to make mistakes about things you claim to know. That's how the word know usually works. M- making a mistake is logically built into it. But being in pain doesn't seem to be like that. I mean if I if I get hit over the head, I'm not going to be mistaken about whether that hurts or not. Mm-hmm. So there's something different going on there. It's not a question of knowing. Now why is this relevant? Well, Descartes seems to presume that the one thing we know for certain is that we exist. And we also know our own inner mental states better than anybody else. I mean, only I know what I'm thinking and feeling. Right? Mm-hmm. Only you can... I mean, only I know that. You, you can only surmise what I'm thinking or feeling. So, that's the presumption that leads us into the problem of dualism, essentially. Because for Descartes, it seems to be implied that I know my private self, but I, uh, but others can know my public self, which implies that there are two two substances. And to there's the a self. dualism, right? Private self and a public self. Yeah, the inner and the outer, mm-hmm. the mind and the body, and the one is private. Now, if that's true, if only I know what I'm thinking and feeling then it should be possible for me to give a vocal expression to those thoughts and feelings. But the expressions would be words that only I know the meaning of. So, you couldn't figure out what I mean by these expressions because they're referring to sensations that only I have. So, in other words, it would be possible to create a private language.
0: Yeah, but a private language just would not work if we both spoke English words but in my version scuba diving meant taking a hot shower and to you it means swimming with a tank of air on your back we quickly get confused. We wouldn't be able to communicate.
1: Right, so words have to have a publicly verifiable meaning Um, and it's that notion that allows Wittgenstein to take a different view of the concept of dualism because essentially what he seems to be denying is the basic distinction that we've been making between the inner, private self, and the outer, publicly observable self. That is, mm-hmm. between the mind and the body. Yeah. And Vickerstein says this distinction is flawed because if the distinction was actually valid, the notion of a private language would actually make sense. But the notion of private language doesn't make any sense at all. It's actually a totally nonsensical concept because our normal use of language entails certain basic things. It has to be rule-governed. It's an activity that uh, is something that we do... It's agreed upon. In a, uh, Yeah, mm-hmm. in an agreed-upon fashion. And none of those things exist in a private language. Now, this is the part of Wittgenstein's philosophy that many people find very confusing. Why is it that I can't just invent a word that's connected to a sensation I have and use the word, and then that's my private language? I mean, what in the world could possibly be wrong with that? except that no one else would understand you. Right, and then you might say, well, but who cares whether anybody else understands me because it's my own private language. But the problem is, I can't even be sure that I'm using the word correctly even in my own sense Mm -hmm. because the notion of correct or incorrect has to have some kind of objective agreement independent of my own view. So if I just make up a use for, for a word, in order to use the word correctly, I've got to have some criterion of what counts as correct and incorrect. But sure. in a private language, I'm making that up too.
0: Sure. We couldn't discourse about important things. We could never, never have a conversation about what is the meaning of beauty. What does beauty mean? Unless we both understood the rules about what beauty means.
1: Yeah, and the truth about it is even though we tend to think that a lot of words are connected with our inner opinion, the reality is they're connected with something external, Mm -hmm. uh, which for lack of a better word, is behavior. So at least in part, Wittgenstein is advocating a form of behaviorism called philosophical behaviorism. Um, Take the example of love. If you say you love somebody, that doesn't imply that you can do anything you want. I mean the concept of love isn't connected with the inner mental state, it's connected with a set of behaviors that we expect you to elicit. Yeah, and, and some behaviors might be unloving. Right, the, mm-hmm. and the the mere fact of recognizing that illustrates that the concept of love is not connected with a private inner mental state. It's a public thing mm-hmm. that we agree upon, but the same thing is true of all of our uses of language. So this notion of privacy in a language is, is almost a contradictory uh, concept. And in thinking that way, he kind of resolves the whole problem of dualism.
0: He sees language as a bridge that unites us rather, rather than a dualistic world that's by which we're divided.
1: Yeah, so we're human beings w- who have the capacity to have feelings, emotions, thoughts, and what have you. Mm-hmm. But the notion of us being a dualistic creature, uh, rigidly divided into two different entities which somehow never quite mixed to create a whole is is the the flaw that he's trying to correct
0: mm-hmm. and he does in such a common sense way we don't need descartes elaborate system of doubt or anything like that
1: yeah i notice wittgenstein is not uh, offering a criticism of dualism based on the premise that descartes starts from he Wittgenstein questions the very premise that he's starting from, that there is a coherent distinction to be made between Mm -hmm. the inner and the outer Mm -hmm. because the presumption that Descartes seems to be making is only I know what I'm thinking and feeling, Mm. and Wittgenstein wants to question that starting point because if that starting point is wrong everything else about dualism turns out to be wrong as well, Mm -hmm. and it's just foolish to think that there's some inner mental state that only I have special privileged access to I said, I'd say, well, that, that's a philosophical way of looking at it. But actually, people in our everyday discourse don't think in those terms. You know, if you say, for instance, I know how to play the piano, uh, the truth or falsity of that doesn't depend on a special inner mental state. The truth or falsity of that statement depends on my being able to do something that's observable, namely sure. make music come out of a piano. If I go up to a piano and just kind of bang around on it and, and don't really look like I know what I'm doing and look confused when somebody puts a piece of music in front of me, you draw the conclusion that I don't know how to play the piano. Mm-hmm. And that's the correct conclusion. If I responded by saying, oh, but I have a special inner mental state called knowing how to play the piano, that's not going to fly. Nobody's going to take that seriously. Sure.
0: I've heard you use the, uh, the example of driving down the road at 80 miles an hour and having the, the clear intention to drive at uh, 55, but being pulled over by a police officer exceeding the speed limit and you're saying but i intended to go only at 55 so there's a, there's a bridge between itself our, our and and outer reality
1: yeah the intention alone doesn't do it that's right uh, you've got to have some publicly observable way of determining that you're really using the word correctly mm-hmm. knowing how to play the piano driving the correct speed what have you they all have that in common uh, and wittgenstein kind of playfully alludes to this by giving a couple of what seem to be very strange examples in the investigations, at one point he, he asked the question, how come my right hand can't give my left hand money? And a lot of people are very confused about what, what in the world does he mean by that? And the reason that's a question at all to ask is because my right hand giving my left hand money looks very much to the untrained observer like one hand from me giving money to one hand of you. Of course, the difference between the two is there's two people involved in Mm -hmm. the actual giving money example. It's not just hand A puts money in hand B. That's not how you define giving. There's a context that involves multiple people. Mm -hmm. Similarly in language, uh, to use a word correctly doesn't simply mean to use the word in your own context in your own mind. It means using it in a shared context. Just like giving money implies a shared context, using language implies a similar shared context. And that's the whole point that Wittgenstein is trying to, uh, to use to show the flaw in dualism.
0: Mm-hmm. He does it very well, too, very convincingly. Now, in uh, his philosophical investigations, Wittgenstein himself says that uh, suppose someone had a box, or everyone had a box with something in it, and we'll call that something a beetle. Now, no one can look into anyone else's box. Everyone says he knows what a beetle is only by looking at his beetle. This is significant, because Wittgenstein goes on to say, here it would be quite possible for everybody to have something different in his own box. You might even imagine such a thing constantly changing. But suppose the word beetle had a use in these people's language. If so, it would not be used as the name of a thing, The thing in the box has no place in the language game at all, not even as a something, because the box might even be empty. What are your thoughts on that? It seems to be be using using this uh, beetle in the box uh, as a wonderful teaching tool about the uh, the um, impossibility of private language.
1: Yeah, and Wittgenstein was always trying to look for crazy, absurd examples. There's there's actually a famous story where he he delighted in coming up with these examples and f- found them very amusing but when his students laughed he would always correct them very severely and say no no I'm serious but he, he always recognized that they were they were inherently absurd examples and this is one of the most famous ones the beetle in the box example and the question is what in the world does this have to do with anything and how is this showing us anything about private language well suppose Descartes is right that, that the, the way we define words that refer to feelings, let's say, is based on some inner mental process, Mm -hmm. well, then it might be possible for us each to have a totally different definition for the word. Like, take the example I mentioned earlier, love. Mm -hmm. If, If love is defined by an inner private mental state that only I have access to, well, there's no way to tell whether my state might be totally different than yours, and therefore our definitions of the word are totally different if that were the case, the word love couldn't have a use in our language at all because we wouldn't have any agreement about what it means. No, we couldn't use the word mm-hmm. for anything. Mm-hmm. It's just like that beetle in the box. If, only, if I can only look in my box and you can only look in your box, who's to say whether we have the same thing in each of our boxes? I mean, you might have a beetle in yours, mine might have an eraser, somebody else's might have nothing. And so the the, the radical point that Wittgenstein is making is the the language doesn't get its meaning by referring to the thing because there might not be a thing at all. I mean, there may be no inner mental state. Whether there is or not is not relevant to the use of the word. The word can only get its meaning by something that's publicly observable and that we agree upon. And this could be behavior, a set of social conventions, or how we live our life, but it's got to be something that we can agree upon, and we can't agree on something if we can't all have access to it. And so it's this notion of agreement and language being a shared activity that's a very central part of Wittgenstein's metaphysics and also a very central part of Wittgenstein's epistemology, which we're going to get to in the next broadcast of Radio Free Philosophy.